1: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our site at subchina.com, including reported stories, editorials, regular columns, and a fast-growing library of videos and podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region, to China's ambitious efforts to eliminate poverty. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Engagement as a guiding principle of U.S.-China policy, uh, the NSC's Asia Czar Kurt Campbell seems fond of saying. Is dead. But was its demise, whether it was murdered or merely euthanized, actually justified? And can it be resurrected? Listeners to this show will have heard the arguments before. Opponents of engagement point to the increasingly illiberal China under Xi Jinping as manifest proof that China didn't become the more tolerant, participatory, benign stakeholder that engagement's champions allegedly promised it would. Those champions say that this mischaracterizes their expectations, that it's a straw man argument. No one ever expected China to become some liberal democracy overnight. These arguments, whatever their merits, are not likely, though, to change anyone's mind. But what if we could actually take a look at engagement in action and see what did come of the policy's implementation? What if we could look at both the costs and the benefits in the engagement ledger, as it were, and get a sense of what it did and did not accomplish. Done right, wouldn't that give us at least something more substantive to debate? The most solid institutional manifestation of the policy of engagement during the critical Obama years was the strategic and economic dialogue, the S&ED. As such, if we want an assessment of engagement in action to see whether it actually worked, then the S&ED is probably what we should look at. My guests today have done just that. The National Committee on American Foreign Policy, in cooperation with the American Friends Service Committee, undertook an extensive audit of the SDD across the eight years that it ran from 2009 to 2017. We will let them tell you all about how that report came together and their methodology and, of course, their major findings and recommendations. But the upshot is clear this is a strong argument that exonerates the policy of engagement, demonstrating quite clearly that engagement actually did bear fruit. In the modest language of the report's authors, it fills in the benefits side of the engagement ledger, uh, but what is on that side of the ledger is actually quite substantial. This is especially impressive if we keep in mind that the S&ED process got started in 2009 during that first awful full year of the Great Recession that followed the global financial crisis and continued during a very challenging time where Beijing had less and less patience for what it saw as American lecturing. Across these years, there were a number of serious issues that were already visible and rising above the waterline. The South China Sea, uh, numerous cyber espionage and other issues around hacking and so forth, clashes over internet censorship or internet sovereignty, as China later came to call it, uh, Chinese misgivings about American democracy promotion in various geographies, especially in the Middle East after 2011, and much more. As this report shows, though, even during this very trying time, there were solid accomplishments. So Joining me to discuss this are Rory Daniels, Daniel Jasper, and our old friend Susan Thornton who were all deeply involved in this audit. Rory Daniels is Deputy Director at the National Committee on American Foreign Policy's Asia Program, where she organizes research and track two discussions on security issues and conflict mediation in the Asia Pacific. She was the team lead on this S&ED audit and is taking time from her maternity leave to join us on Seneca. So thanks and mazel tov, uh, for the latest addition to the family. Welcome to Seneca, Rory.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we tried to time this report so it would come out about a week before I was due but my baby had other plans he came three (laughs) weeks early so there's some things you just can't you know time right
1: yeah yeah i know i know the feeling well we had our our first one popped out three three weeks early too daniel jasper is asia advocacy i'm gonna before i so it's great to have you here rory Daniel Jasper is Asia Advocacy Coordinator for the American Friends Service Committee and was co-lead on the audit. His work focuses on China and North Korea, and he spent some time here in North Carolina in the Triangle at Duke, uh, but we're going to forgive him that trespass. Um, Dan, welcome to Seneca.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. Really excited to have this conversation today. I think it's a a really important one, so we appreciate you taking the time to to focus in on this. The honor is entirely
1: mine. The pleasure is entirely mine. And, of course, I am delighted to welcome back Susan Thornton, a veteran diplomat whose last post in government was as Acting Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia and Pacific Affairs. Susan is currently a visiting lecturer in law at Yale Law School and senior fellow at the Paul Tsai China Center. At the State Department, Susan had a direct hand in many of the things that we're going to be discussing today, uh, from bringing China to the Paris Climate Accord to the U.S.-China Cyber Agreement. Susan oversaw this uh, S and audit in her capacity as Director of the Forum on Asian Pacific Security at the National Committee on American Foreign Policy. She joins us on the show for, I believe, what is it, the third time, Susan, fourth time, something like that.
3: Something like that.
1: <laughs> well, anyway, welcome back. Great to have you.
3: Thanks. Great to be back.
1: So, Laurie, let's start start off with you and, and jump in and talk about the SNDD itself. For our younger listeners who might not remember, perhaps we should review what exactly the SNDD, the Strategic and Economic Dialogue, was. Even for those who were around at the time, there might still be some confusion about how it differs from its predecessor, the SED, the Strategic Economic Dialogue, which was convened during the Bush 43 administration. Um, so maybe you can give us an overview of what SNDD was and the significance of the ampersand that it got during the Obama administration.
0: Absolutely. So the strategic and economic dialogue was an annual forum of cabinet secretaries or ministers and other high-level officials from the U.S. and China who would meet to review, to revise, and to announce progress on a very broad range of topics on the bilateral agenda. It arose, as you alluded to, from the strategic economic dialogue that was convened under the George W. Bush administration between the Treasury Department and their counterparts in China, mostly to focus on economic issues and to do so from a bottom up working level negotiation perspective, the Bush administration also had at the time what they called a senior dialogue, which was a separate process. This was the strategic track, so to speak, of the U.S.-China relationship in that administration and it was meant to shine some leadership attention and get some leadership level buy-in on the strategic issues between the two sides but it was held primarily at the deputy secretary of state or under secretary level mm. so at the beginning of the obama administration these two mechanisms were combined into the strategic and economic dialogue and what you know that ampersand did was first it elevated the strategic issues up to the principal's level, the secretary of state, um, and higher. So it married both the top-down and bottom-up approaches, and it also married the strategic and economic issues into one forum.
1: Right. Great. Dan, there was another set of conversations that were happening under the auspices of the U.S.-China Joint Commission on Commerce and Trade, the JCCT. How how should we think about the differences and the overlaps between s and and the JCCT?
2: Yeah, I think that's an important question. Uh, the JCCT, I think, has a lot of longevity and history behind it that even supersedes the S&ED, or excuse me, the SED. So the JCT uh, goes back to 1983, I believe. Mm-hmm. And so it has a very long history. Um, it's headed by, on the US side, the Secretary of Commerce, as well as the US Trade Representative and on the china side it's headed by the ministry of commerce so when the sned was put into place under obama these two interfaced and i think there was a little bit of struggle between jurisdiction the jcct is a little bit more specific in nature it's convened i think uh has about 16 different working groups that are more specific in nature you know it covers everything from intellectual property rights to pharmaceutical and medical devices to envir- environmental protections Statistics and so on. Uh, the economic track of the SNED was a little bit broader in scope, and so I think that these things initially sort of rubbed against each other, and there was a little bit of a struggle about what was going to cover what. But as time went on, I think there was a, a rhythm established, or this is a, the sense that I got from interviewees, anyways, was that it, it allowed officials to take two bites of the apple, as it were, where the SNED was held in the summer and the JCCT was held in the winter. So that allowed officials to both put uh, commitments forward in the summer and then perhaps see where the progress was in the winter or vice versa. I think what's important here is that the SNED, since it was a little bit broader in scope, probably added a little bit more momentum to the already existing JCCT rather than the other way around. And so there was a lot of momentum and I think work through that uh, had already existed. With the Joint Commission on Commerce and Trade, um, but the SNED certainly
1: put a lot of wind in its
2: sails, so to speak.
1: Excellent, excellent. So, Susan, on the U.S. side, uh, the convening of the SNED, really, you know, in its early genesis, was driven during the the transition period, really, uh, by outgoing Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson and by incoming Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner. Uh, was the the whole urgency around the need to convene this mainly because of the global financial crisis? Was that what prioritized this? And then who was? I mean, I understand Wang Qishan was involved on the Chinese side. It was that like he, the pr- principal person, driving that uh, from Beijing.
3: Yeah. So you're right, uh, Kaiser. When we think about the beginning of the SNED, of course it came right at this very pivotal moment when we were experiencing a global financial meltdown. There was no question at the time, and I was um, working on China. Kurt Campbell had come in as the assistant secretary for East Asia and Pacific. We were working with Treasury counterparts. Of course, Tim Geithner came in as the secretary. And there was no question at the time that the SED in some form would continue because we were coordinating with China on an urgent and almost daily basis at that time as we were with other countries around the world to try to keep the financial system from melting down. We had the initial meeting in Washington, D.C. on coordinating macroeconomic policies in the wake of the crisis, then we had a meeting in, I think there was one in London. Then it came back to Pittsburgh, et cetera. And we were working all during that time very closely with the Chinese. The real issue, though, in the transition was about combining or not combining the two tracks that Rory was talking about. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, I think, misinterpretation of that. At the time, the Treasury Department thought the State Department was making a grab for territory or turf or whatever, and trying to uh, muscle in on the Treasury Department's very important global stability enhancing dialogue. Um, My interpretation of it is very different. We had similar tension between Treasury and Commerce over the JCCT and the S&ED, as Dan alluded to. But my interpretation really was that As Rory said, this strategic security dialogue, the senior dialogue, was this top-down discussion on very thorny issues. And it was pretty clear, I think, and even today in the minds of many, that many of these issues were sources of great frustration, differences, tensions, and were over things that were very hard to make progress on, whereas all of the dialogues on the economic side were focused a bit differently such that they could be teed up to demonstrate progress. And there was a feeling, I think, on the part of the sort of national security elite in Washington at the time that the U S China relationship was too heavily weighted on the economic side. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, these frustrating security issues were not getting enough attention or were not given serious, Consideration by the Chinese side, who were very much devoted to these economic dialogues and moving ahead on on those issues. And so the idea of putting the two together was both for coordination among US government agencies, which is always notoriously difficult, but in this case, even more difficult because of the complexity of the issues. But second, to sort of put the security issues on an equal footing with the economic issues so the Chinese would take them more seriously and so that we could try to make some progress.
1: Right, right, right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, How involved was uh, the Chinese leadership on their side? I mean, were Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao and then after 2013, Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang, were they directly involved in this or was this something that they sort of delegated down to people like Wang Qishan?
3: Um, The question about the establishment of this particular sort of diplomatic mechanism, they would certainly, the Chinese leadership would have been directly supportive of establishing a more robust set of interactions, but they were not directly involved. Wang Qishan was very involved as the former person um, at the SED, the Strategic Economic Dialogue, but- and I guess ba- Dai war on the Chinese side on mm-hmm. the State Council and Foreign Ministry side as the Deputy Foreign Minister was very involved in pushing it forward on that side. But I think basically the Chinese were very much in receive mode, but they were very happy to to see that the U.S. was prioritizing and elevating and expanding the dialogue. And I think the other thing that was going on at this time that's important to remember is that really this was the heyday of globalization where so many global issues were coming onto the international agenda, things that we hadn't had to grapple with before and where right. we were finding that we needed to do a lot more coordination with China. So so none of this was static, you know, a lot of things were moving, a lot of new things were happening. And all of those kind of push toward developing this kind of combined and expanded mechanism.
1: Susan, I'm going to stay with you for just a second here, because you were so directly involved. And I want to give our listeners a sense of the mechanics of the thing, how many people from each side were participating besides state and treasury, what other uh, Cabinet level uh, officials were involved. Were the state and the treasury components of it kept relatively compartmentalized and separate, or were they commingled? Uh, and I guess I, I want to get just even just sort of a, some color on it. What 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 kinds of venues are we talking about? What was the sort of run of show? Uh, what was the setting like? What were the seating arrangements like? What was it like? What, what sorts of meetings are we talking about here?
3: Huge meetings. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
3: um, you know, following on my last comment about globalization and how many issues were coming onto the docket, it started off with the, mainly the State Department and the Treasury Department setting the agenda, talking about the issues that they had traditionally touched on in their dialogues. But as new issues came to the fore, new cabinet secretaries wanted to engage with their chinese counterparts directly on the matters that they were interested and expert in and they would be added sort of to the to the docket and one of the big criticisms and we'll probably get into this later in the show is that you know we had the entire us government showing up at these meetings but that was because you know every cabinet secretary for example energy Environmental mm-hmm. Protection Agency. Even, you know, oddly enough, there was a dialogue about national parks. So even our <laughs> you know, Secretary of the Interior, I don't think was ever at the meetings, but there was a discussion about how do you set up national parks and this kind of thing. So there were all kinds of issues that came up. Some had to do with addressing issues of international cross-border type coordination, but a lot of them were also issues addressed at talking to China about what we had learned in doing various things as they were setting up various institutions in China. So there is this dual nature of the sort of developed developing country dynamic plus uh, just coordination among major powers on threatening global challenges. On the venues question, uh, was fascinating, you know. We this was a very protocol intensive effort, and I'll you bet. know, you yeah. talk about <laughs> arranging the chairs at the table, et cetera. It was all extremely delicate, and a lot of man hours were spent on this, and I'm sure on the Chinese side as well. But we had to find venues that were big enough uh, to seat all these cabinet uh, secretaries and their retinues. We had to try to find spaces that were going to accommodate catering and side meetings and side dialogues and all of this. So one of the dialogues I worked on, I remember we used the atrium of the Reagan building. I don't know if you've ever been there in Washington, Mm -hmm. D.C. It's this huge, expansive space. And we had to sort of cordon off little rooms and use curtains and other things. But it was a big effort just on the logistics and the State Department's events staff had to really uh, help us a lot with finding spaces, etc.
1: How many people, how many participants from the Chinese side typically at uh, you know, an s and D that happened, say, just midway through the Obama?
3: Oh, I would say probably flying over to the US for S&ED both in the lead up to the meetings to do the last minute negotiations, and then to be there staffing principals, you know, more than more than a hundred people easily, probably a couple of hundred people.
1: Hmm. Wow. Wow. That's great. I mean, it does give me some some flavor of, of what it was like. Uh, Dan, back to you, real quick. The two days in the spring and summer of each year where, uh, you know, they were the the main event. As you say, you know, we had JCCT that was in the winter as a complement. But there were other summits, there were other bi- and uh, multilateral meetings that ran in uh, the other seasons of the year, if that's correct. Um, is is this sort of where the main work actually got done, or were those just sort of following up on action items that were already kind of decided upon in the main meetings? Uh, where where was the rubber hitting the road, typically? Yeah, I
2: think this is a really good question. Um, and, and I think it's important to remember that the s really did – serve as an umbrella of sorts for sort of sub-dialogues and discussions that took place and, and even local level cooperations at some point. So um, you know there there was a lot of uh places in which the rubber could meet the road. I think the answer is, you know, it's a little bit of both. Um, in, in in a lot of cases, the the working level meetings offered the place where the US could set priorities um, and and move things up the chain as they needed. Um, at times, if they felt stuck, I think the the um, meetings in the summer, the high-level meetings, was also a place for the, the principals to get an attention to these issues right. and to move the ball forward. That being said, uh, it's only two days. As Susan mentioned, you know, this is a, a pretty protocol-intensive effort, and I've heard principals say that they only had a few minutes to speak during the these processes, and so I think it was difficult to move a considerable amount of, of work through these meetings, but at the same time, it offered a really important point of contact to get attention from senior level Chinese officials so that in the next round of the working level meetings, uh, they could set directives for their working level. And so to grossly oversimplify things, I sort of see it as a loop in which the working levels allowed the U.S. side to move things up from the bottom up, and once they met at the sort of high level level, uh, you know, high level discussions, uh, it allowed the Chinese things to move it back down, and then the next round of working level talks were a little bit more productive. And again, that's over oversimplifying things a little bit, but just to give you some flavor of, of the, the sort of methods of working there.
1: Thanks, thanks, Dad. So Rory, there's a lot of criticism of S and If we had to characterize what the conventional skeptical line on S and is. Uh, what, what was that? What do those people who later soured on engagement have to say about s
0: I think there are four main criticisms or buckets of criticism, and I'll briefly break them down. And we can talk a little bit more about whether or not we found them to be accurate criticisms, um, according to the data that we collected. But, but the first is that It was not a true dialogue. So as Dan was just alluding to that, there was a there is a sense that nothing could be decided in the room, um, particularly that on the Chinese side, given the top down nature of the Chinese system, that there was no room for negotiators to come up with creative solutions or to work in the same way that U.S. interlocutors could to advance in the room An issue um, to the next stage of progress. Mm -hmm. So it was not a true dialogue. It was unproductive. Uh, Oftentimes, it's called a talk shop where nothing got done and that the Chinese leadership was not empowered. That's kind of one bucket of criticism. Another bucket, which we've also talked a little bit about already, is that it was too broad, that it lumped in too many topics, that it treated each topic as equal value, and that therefore it was not strategic. So the first two criticisms are that it was not strategic and it was not a dialogue. And therefore, you know, a strategic and economic dialogue was a very poor choice of a name for this process. The third criticism is that it wasn't necessary and this is a criticism i think mostly from the us side but the criticism says that the chinese were only committed to in the sned doing what they were already going to do right and that the process itself was superfluous to any progress that was made on the bilateral agenda a corollary criticism i guess would be that the chinese would commit to doing something and then not follow through on their commitments that one we can actually use our data to point to and say, we don't think that this is is this is this a pattern of behavior that you can use to criticize the entire dialogue. And then finally, the last criticism is not so much a criticism of the s process in and of itself, but a criticism of engagement with China writ large. And that criticism says that, you know, any cooperation with China helped the U.S. create its own Frankenstein's monster, that the U.S. willingly developed Chinese power, that it willingly endorsed China's systems or values that run contrary to the U.S. perception of its own values without an understanding that China's power and its growing power was a grave threat or even an existential threat to the United States. And therefore, you know, the process itself was flawed from the beginning because the outcome of it was to strengthen China to the detriment of the United States.
1: Sure. But as you say, this is more an overarching critique of, of engagement rather than specifically about the S and D uh, Susan, I want to try to get an idea of what each side actually expected. What what did it anticipate getting out of s and One thing that uh, the authors wrote about in this report was how China did not tend to push for specific changes in American laws or regulations, whereas Americans often focused on making quite specific changes to Chinese regulations. Uh, from your perspective, you know, from all your, your years negotiating with the Chinese, what accounts for this Difference in approach? I mean, is it just a power differential? Is it that China didn't ask for regulatory or policy changes because it felt like it couldn't? Or is this a reflection of maybe more fundamental differences in the approach to diplomacy? What what accounts for this disparity?
3: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think it depends on sort of which areas we're talking about, but the idea that we're going to be pushing for Chinese regulatory changes or even establishment of regulations in certain areas usually fell into the either the economic and trade and investment area, so the SED or the JCCT realm. Or, of course, there was a lot of discussion about climate and energy projects and other kind of specific technical matters that might involve regulatory changes. I mean, the Chinese system had a lot of open regulatory spaces, and I think Part of the dialogue, the idea was to try to to close those spaces, to try to get regulations on the books that would then be implemented by China in areas where uh, we thought China's activity in that sphere was going to have an impact on the U.S. or on the broader global picture in that area. And I think uh, conservation and environment, of course, climate change certainly fits into that uh, space. But I think the other thing is that we just have two very different systems and the way that the U.S. government works is we have a law or a regulation and that covers a certain activity. And, you know, if there's a space that uh, is not covered by law or regulation, then it's permitted. Whereas in the Chinese case, you know, they govern more by campaigns Um, And it's not exactly the case that everything that is not forbidden is permitted, as we know. So there's a real difference in sort of the way that things get sort of regulated and carried out in terms of rules that people can follow. And certainly in the context of the international kind of system, um, especially the international economic system, but also increasingly uh, environmental issues and other things, the U.S. was very interested in having these open spaces in China be be closed and be clearer about what activities and what behaviors would be expected and would be allowed going forward. And I think, of course, in the U.S., we have separation of powers where Congress makes the rules and the legislation. And I think the Chinese have heard frequently enough from U.S. interlocutors about how the separation of powers makes it impossible for us to negotiate what kind of legislation Congress is going to pass at a dialogue like this. Right. So I think maybe the Chinese had heard that frequently enough that they understood that there wasn't really in the ambit of reality to think that we could you know, change legislation based on a dialogue that we had with them. But uh, certainly a lot of the discussions we had in the context of s were in the nature of sort of educating both sides about the constraints of the other and making changes on various issues. And I think that was a really valuable part of the dialogue that is, is often overlooked and, a val- and a, something valuable about engagement that's often overlooked.
1: That's right. That comes out in the report. I mean, you talk quite a bit about the contrast between these two bureaucratic systems and uh, how much was learned in that. Dan, um, the report also talks about how the meetings tended not to produce concrete, actionable items. I mean, Rory flicked at that earlier, and she's talking about the critiques of it. Instead, there were these sort of big, sweeping statements of principle. Uh, But somehow, concrete gains could still be made on the Chinese side. And your, your report talks about how the, that mechanism works. How, how did it work? How, how were the Chinese participants actually helped by these broad sweeping statements of principle? How were they, were they able then to take that home and get something done?
2: Yeah, and, and just to clarify too, I think it's important to note that there there was a good combination of of commitments that were both broad and sweeping in nature, and there were there were a lot of uh, commitments that were really specific in nature too. And just sort of off the top of my head, I can think of uh, you know OTC derivatives in the wake of the two thousand eight financial crisis right. were a really critical. Part of that crisis, and and there were a, a good number of very specific commitments that were made and followed through on that. Just another example, quickly, is steel capacity production at the end of the SNED. I think offered some really specific outcomes and commitments as well. Um, that being said, I think what you're getting at here is that there were a, a good portion of outcomes that that were sort of broad sweeping in nature and and seemed to reflect, I think, a lack of progress at the working level. And I think that what that, you know, when they included commitments and outcomes that were sort of broad statements, what that was, was a a moment in which the Chinese officials that the high level Chinese officials could then take that, identify their own priorities within that and and hand down mandates to working level officials. And again, as I had alluded to earlier, that allows uh, the working level discussions or the next round of working discussions uh,
1: to move a little bit further in the future. Excellent. Roy, just now Susan was talking about how uh, the kind of interaction between these two very different bureaucratic systems was in itself really beneficial. Your report talks about quite, quite a number of gains that were made in important areas uh, that where the U.S. actually benefited from not specifics, but by the process of dialogue itself. Uh, what did you mean by that? I thought that was a really interesting assertion.
0: There are several issues that came up in the s that were points of friction between the U.S. and China for some time, and will probably remain points of friction between the U.S. and China for some time to come. And in particularly in those instances, there was a value in having dialogue to clarify misperceptions and misunderstandings. Um, this was even true in areas where we were expecting, where the U.S. was expecting more substantive progress, such as finding ways to increase air traffic between the two countries, um, the assumptions that the US side made going into those negotiations about what was holding up progress on the Chinese side were revealed through dialogue to be not the same as what the Chinese side perceived as their own obstacles in mm. in achieving progress, particularly on that and other technical issues. And this is not to say that the US side then said, well, all of the Chinese concerns are legitimate, and we should just drop this issue. Um, there was no sense, I think, from my perspective that U.S. officials were excusing lack of progress on any particular issue due to uh, a better understanding through dialogue of what the Chinese barriers to progress were. But in hearing each other and listening to each other, they were able to form relationships that allowed them to reality test how significant those barriers were and to come up with creative solutions. So one area that I think is really significant that the U.S. Uh, gained a lot out of this process from was the, the relationship building. And that carried over into issues that were outside the scope of the SNED. So when crises occurred, uh, when issues that could not be planned for jumped up on the bilateral agenda, the US officials had this network of working level relationships and they said, oh, I know, you know, who's the right person to talk to about this. I know that person and I know their priorities on X, Y, and Z. So I can talk to them about how we're going to resolve this, this ad hoc issue, this crisis issue in the moment.
1: I could totally see how that would work. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So relationship building and clarifying misperceptions, I think were two areas where dialogue was particularly effective. And then I think what the, the, I think the result of those two benefits of relationship building and of clarifying misperceptions allows us to manage issues on which we are not likely to see progress. Right. So um, those are some of the the less tangible values that we got out of the S&ED process. Susan, you wanted to add, add something? Yeah, I, I,
3: um, I, I did want to jump in on this because I also want to point out that having a high-level dialogue like the Strategic and Economic Dialogue, which has been clearly and repeatedly endorsed at the highest levels of the Chinese government, has the effect of just opening doors in China on all manner of issues that I think probably would you would find it very difficult to get in and have a meeting about otherwise. And one example uh, in my experience was... We had um, an undersecretary at the State Department who was very eager to work on a new conservation area in an ocean in the Antarctic. Mm-hmm. And we couldn't figure out why we couldn't get the Chinese to talk to us about this. They were stonewalling and we and we finally got in through because the SNED also included things like the Chinese Coast Guard and Chinese military officials. and it turned out the Chinese Coast Guard had, some uh writ of authority over this decision making and we were able to get in and see that person and we finally did make progress on this issue through this process but i don't think we would have gotten in that door to have that meeting the person wouldn't have trusted enough that it was okay to meet with us without this you know higher level umbrella process
1: yeah that makes a ton of sense i want to move now and talk about the audit itself uh and Rory, back to you, can you talk a little bit about the research design behind it how uh what what kind of methodology you guys employed and and how did you actually assess outcomes
0: right, so the s n e d process made it easy to come up with a research design because every meeting contained a fact sheet or a release of the outcomes that were reached at the round of the s and e d and so we assembled a list of over 900 of these outcomes from the years uh, 2010 to 2016. And they, these are all grouped by topic. So addressing bilateral concerns is one topic, climate change and energy is another topic. We split them up on a six person research team and each took about 150 of them and started to look at whether or not those outcomes contained commitments. We broke down those commitments and asked whether or not those commitments were measurable. Mm-hmm. So there are many areas of the SNED; these broad statements of principle. What does it mean to strengthen cooperation in Africa's Great Lakes region, for example? There are areas where the value or the measurability of the outcome is quite subjective, sure. and we just tried to do the best we could to come up with metrics that would um, speak to whether or not the commitment was fulfilled. Then we looked uh, using open source research to see whether or not we could find data on those commitments. Could we find, you know, Chinese regulations that were made? Um, could we find agreements that were signed? Could we find uh, data on emission standards or other areas of commitment that we could then cite as progress in the commitment? And for many of them we could, and for some of them we couldn't. I would like to say at this point that we consider this data set, which is linked to in the report and which you can access online, to be a living document. There were many areas where we could not find data through open source research on whether or not a commitment was fulfilled. Um, and there were many areas where you know we could still be building out this data set. So we encourage people to contribute to it. We hope there are listeners out there that are as interested in the evaluation methods of diplomacy as we are. There might be very few of those people out there. But if you're out there and you think you have something to say about this conversation or would like to go through our data set and make suggestions, we welcome that.
1: Yeah, I think this- there's a contact inf- There's contact information in the report. So please do check that out. I think it's important. I think a lot of our listeners will probably participants and you did interview quite a number of participants in the SNED along the way yeah
0: we did so where we couldn't find open source research and particularly to talk about the value of the SNED that was not tangible was not covered by commitments we went back and interviewed mostly working level officials who had worked on the SNED from a variety of cabinet departments we talked to people from state we talked to people from treasury we talked to people from the Department of Energy, from the Department of Homeland Security, and from other agencies. So we tried to fill in the gaps of what the data couldn't say or tell us by asking people who worked on it how they assess the value. And the two methods combined, the interviews and the data set, ultimately brought us to reaching the conclusions that we reached
1: in the report. Mm hmm. So Dan, uh, when I asked Rory to talk about some of the critiques that that are prevalent about the S and D D process, one of them was that you know a lot of these things China would have done anyway; they would have walked down that same path irrespective of the dialogues of the negotiations. How so? How are you able to tell when the S and D D process actually had an effect on outcomes? Um, there's another critique that, that that shows up in in the report itself. Uh, I think it's related to this. Respondents talk about this tendency for State and Treasury. To take credit for things that actually did not depend at all on the SDD process. So, uh, how are you able to take into account these two uh, these, these two things and, and assess the, the contribution of SDD itself?
2: Yeah, so I, I think the nerd in me really loves this question, and you know, um, <laughs> the, my time spent at the other end of tobacco road actually, I, in some ways, inceptioned me for some of this research because I spent a lot of time looking at how do we monitor and evaluate you know, methods of peace and social justice. And so we did spend a lot of time thinking through um, h- how do we parse things out? But, you know, the first thing you'll learn in any statistics class is that you can never prove causation, right? right? You can only show correlation. And so even if we were able to run something like a multivariate regression analysis on this, we still would not be able to talk about causation. So, you know, we hemmed and hawed a little bit. Um, but I think as researchers, you know, looking at monitoring and evaluating this thing, we, we in some ways have to take the the statements that we have, which is essentially our baseline data at face value. We're not in a position to say this came out of which dialogue because we only have the baseline data, which is the joint statements. Um, so this is really more of a challenge, I think, for officials to sort of resist the temptation to put everything under the same bucket um, keeping it separate, I think, is important for monitoring and evaluating. And I think using vocabulary is really important. And we need to pay attention to what we, what we identify as an output versus an outcome. You know, in my mind, an output is something that comes out of a dialogue and an outcome is something that actually transpires. That being said, we can say that these commitments are results of the dialogue, whether it was SNED or a sub dialogue in some ways I think is a little bit irrelevant because what we set out to see was does dialogue have an impact, right? And and can we measure that? And I think the answer was was yes to both of those. And in regards to the question of China would have done it anyway, so, you know, what does it matter? I think there's some important points here that we need to make. And and one is, you know, if that's true, the real value of the SNED was that the US participated in those changes and so certainly they helped shape the outcomes that they wouldn't have been able to if they weren't at the table discussing these things and actually one of the things that we found was that china became more transparent about regulatory changes and they sh- they shared draft laws things like that and the u.s did as well so it was important to have input from both sides the second is that now we have a counterfactual right, right. Uh, do we see china moving towards or away from u.s interests I think the answer is pretty clear at this point. And so to have an anchor like the S&ED is incredibly crucial because one way or the other, we'd like to
1: participate in those changes, right? Absolutely. Now, that's very important. I think that the counterfactual really speaks volumes here. Uh, let's dive in now and talk about some of the major accomplishments that the report cites as having come out of the s and um, you guys put these in five main buckets, and I think it's worthwhile to go through each of these. So I'm just going to list them, and you guys can decide among yourselves who wants to address each bucket. Let's start with macroeconomic stability, which was, of course, the, r- the real urgency in the 2010, uh, in the 2009 and 2010 dialogues that taking place in the early crisis. So why don't we we talk about that first?
2: Yeah, I can jump in on that. Um, sure. I, and I think macroeconomic stability was a really important piece of progress from the S&ED that we found, especially in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. Again, just to quickly touch on the SED uh, under Bush, I think it was important to many or a few interviewers or excuse me, interviewees mentioned that. Um, it was absolutely critical to have that communication during the crisis because it would have been very easy for each side to misinterpret one another. But going a little bit forward and, and uh, looking at the s and and how that contributed to macroeconomic stability, I think as the dust started to settle, I think they started to look inward how does the Chinese and the U.S. domestic economies really impact the, the global economic situation. So we had a few different outcomes that came um, that I think are worth noting. One thing that China committed to was to increase domestic consumption, and it mm-hmm. did so by about six percentage points, which in my mind is is pretty significant. Um, the U.S. for its part committed to increasing national and private savings, uh, and it sought long term fiscal su- sustainability through things like healthcare reform, which was important. Um, Just to kind of give you a quick flavor of what um, the other things that China looked at, uh, you know, I have a list here that can just quickly read off, you know, China committed to increase household income, promoting job creation, accelerating development of the service sector, speeding up reform of monopolies, increasing access to financing for small and medium enterprises, expanding things like rural pension programs, things like that. And I think one thing that I'll just quickly note, I'll pull from that list is the, the speeding up of reform of monopolies um, in the SNED China committed to a building off of its 2008 anti-monopoly law and throughout the SNED we did see it, quite a bit of progress there and interestingly enough, I think it came to a head in 2019 so three years after the SNED uh, when China established a new regulatory agency that had a lot more enforcement power than previous agents SAMR. That's right, exactly. Yeah, and so we do see momentum carrying
1: forward even after the S and E uh, D on a lot of these issues. Absolutely, Susan. Maybe you can talk about intellectual property rights protection. That was another one of the buckets that you listed. This is something that is often cited as one of the failures of engagement. You know, China supposedly continued to steal American intellectual property, as the Trump White House constantly alleged. But you cite progress on that front that grew out of S D D. Yes.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think most people, if you talk with American businesses doing business in China over these last several decades, would tell you that China has made tremendous strides on its intellectual property regime, uh, setting up of intellectual property courts, um, moving to close this very open, obviously, regulatory space when we started this process with China. The criticism, of course, would be that it did not move fast enough in this area and that it sort of would close one loophole and then another one would open up. But I think most people who have worked diligently on Chinese intellectual property rights would probably judge the Trump administration's initial foray in this space, the 301 report, to be a little bit one-sided in its judgments about the fact that the Chinese had done nothing in this space. It was a major focus throughout the SNED on the economic side. It Also, was a major focus of the JCCT that continued in parallel to the SNED all throughout those years. And you know, of course, we would complain and say that not enough was done. But I think you know, you hear people say now that China's intellectual property regime is made pretty significant strides and is bound to probably continue to do so as China generates its own intellectual property. But a lot of this was at the uh, you know behest and a lot of hard work was done. Um, there was an intellectual property uh, attache at the embassy in Beijing. Uh, the embassy convened an intellectual property roundtable uh, led by the ambassador every year, and all of these things were under the umbrella of these efforts under the SNED.
1: I actually took part in that one year uh, when Gary Locke was was there uh, on behalf of Baidu. Yeah so great now that I think I uh, I fully agree with you that uh, I think anyone who was on the ground there certainly saw progress being made and yeah a lot of it is attributable to the fact that China was generating its own IP and they wanted to protect it from you know uh, other Chinese companies Let's talk about public health and perhaps maybe focus on the praiseworthy cooperation between China and the U.S. to tackle the crisis in West Africa in 2014, of course, Ebola. This seems really relevant to today because, you know, the conspicuously wretched way the two countries have failed utterly to cooperate in addressing COVID-19 and all the lost opportunities of of the Trump years. Uh, With all this recrimination now and all these actual laws on the books now to prevent Collaboration like in gain of function research. We're not allowed to, NSF is not allowed to fund anything because of a rider on the Innovation and Competition Act that's related to work that the Wuhan Institute of Virology does. What, though, was the linkage between SNDD and collaboration on infectious disease during the Obama administration?
0: There were a few and it snowballed over time into what you cite and what I agree was a pretty significant collaboration on the Ebola crisis in 2014. So the China and the U.S. have been working on infectious diseases together since the SARS outbreak um, in the early 2000s and moving on through the avian flu outbreak um, a little later on. But it, the cooperation culminated in a joint effort to address the Ebola crisis in West Africa, with the U.S. contributing a lot of technical expertise to that containment effort and the Chinese giving resources, setting up containment centers. So there was a a joint collaborative effort to address the Ebola situation on the ground. And in the period leading up to that and afterward, there was also an expansion of U.S. CDC personnel in Beijing looking at infectious disease cooperation. So at one point, I believe there were up to 10 staff members of the U.S. CDC stationed in Beijing and conducting a local staff that was even larger, maybe up to 50 people. So that cooperation and cooperation was essential to laying the groundwork for joint responses to infectious diseases. After the Ebola crisis had had ebbed from its crisis point, the US and China continued to talk about ways to c- uh, collaborate on infectious disease prevention and containment, and jointly decided to put resources into establishing an Africa Center for Disease Control and Prevention in Africa, CDC. Right. And that project, um, unfortunately, the US pulled out of that project at the beginning of the Trump administration after it had been agreed to in um, 2016. Um, But the, the US pulled out of it over concerns about China's use of data, of health data of Africans in the project moving forward. So The Chinese actually went forward with the Africa CDC and broke ground on it um, a couple of years ago. And I have no doubt that it has been an essential venue to address the COVID-19 crisis in Africa. Absolutely, But it's been done without U.S. participation, unfortunately, due to concerns over what it means to collaborate with China in a data-heavy and um, health informatics space.
1: I looked at the website. It's, It's terrific. There's a lot of initiatives happening, especially around COVID prevention.
2: Yeah, Dan. Yeah, I just wanted to add to this point, too, you know, a little bit outside of this research, but within the context of AFSC sort of day-to-day work, one of the things that has surfaced in in uh, track two dialogues was the fact that in a lot of these cooperations, especially in the public health realm, Um, They were sort of inhibited by uh, uh, the Foreign Assistance Act, which had been written in 1961 and actually prohibited certain types of cooperations between the U.S. and China. And actually, it actually prohibits USAID from cooperating with countries that are, quote, unquote, part of the global communist conspiracy. Mm -hmm. And so this sort of outdated language (laughs) got in the way of a lot of these cooperative opportunities. And we had heard stories where you know, the U.S. and China would agree to host trainings uh, in Africa or something, but the U.S. side would have to force the Chinese officials to leave the room in order to give their trainings uh, for public health measures. Christ. And and so, you know, it really points to me in in, in the sense that when we do, do, you know, when we have these dialogues and we, we search for commitments, it really does take a sort of Whole of government approach here, and and we need sort of more consistency between the executive and congressional branches. And really quick, and uh, just a quick anecdote about that is that we we actually spoke to one of the authors of the Foreign Assistance Act, and and initially they said, well, you know, I helped write that act, and and it seems fine to me. And, and we said, well, did, have you seen the language lately? And and he said. Oh, oh well, that's that's pretty outdated. So we do need to think about that, and so I think that Congress also needs to think about ways in which they can support these dialogues and cooperations going forward.
1: Well, everything old is new again, and you know there is a global communist conspiracy. If you ask a lot of these, you know, the Ted Cruz types, but yeah, what have you, Josh Hawley. Um, two more things. These things, climate change, is the next major one. Uh, Susan, I'd love to, to hear your take on uh, how you know we look, look. We all heard the stories about COP 15 in Copenhagen, and if that was the starting point, that very ugly starting point, getting to Paris seems like uh, quite an accomplishment. How important was was S and D to that process?
3: I think that the SNED was absolutely essential to get from 2009 to 2016 the the signing of the Paris Climate Accords and what we did in the SNED between those two dates between the two COPs was that we basically set out a whole series of different collaborative arrangements that would help China to sort of make Make its way toward a vision that it could see for itself on, you know, uh, reducing its carbon emissions. Basically, so we had projects on uh, carbon capture sequestration. We had uh, cooperation between the two environmental protection agencies on standard setting and regulatory interventions, et cetera, et cetera. And over that. Sort of building up of these relationships, familiarization really with the actual tools and technologies and mechanisms by which you could actually get there. I think that really did um, make it possible for the Chinese to make you know new commitments that would allow them to sign up to Paris in in. Was it 2016? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, So I'd love for Rory to jump in here because she studied all of these various energy and climate change outcomes. The energy department was also crucially uh, engaged with China on a lot of different issues related to its use of coal, et cetera, um, which is, of course, crucial to try to curb at the moment if we're going to try to make it to COP26.
1: Yeah. Rory, did you want to add, talk a little bit about the uh, Energy Department's participation of the Secretary Chief? Sure.
0: Yeah, I'd like to, maybe I'll just highlight one or two success stories on climate change and clean energy um, that cross-cut some of the issues that we've been talking about. So one is the Clean Energy Research Center. And this was a government-led research program that was funded half by the U.S. and Chinese government and half by the private sector, including universities, national laboratories, companies to study energy efficiency and energy solutions. And so two, two things really stand out about this. One is that um, the Department of Energy was very sensitive to the intellectual property issues that might arise from a public-private cooperation on on energy technology issues. And they built into the Clean Energy Research Center's protocols, an IP protocol and technology management plans that were later cited in a government accountability report as particularly um, effective and essential to allowing cooperation. At the same time that companies that were surveyed said that, you know, the U.S. government could have done no more to help them protect their intellectual property, they were still really hesitant to share their sensitive intellectual property for lots of reasons. And it didn't prevent great research cooperation from going forward. So the Clean Energy Research Center from 2011 to 2015 produced 44 significant research results produced um, a number of patent applications and um, really advanced their agenda in coming to clean energy technology cooperation between the United States and China in very significant ways. And they did it without sacrificing intellectual property rights issues. And the intellectual property rights issues may not have been the the big barrier to progress there. So I think that there's a good argument to make in the climate change cooperation from the s and that the US and China have a lot to gain through joint research activities. And that, you know, far from mitigating risks, some of the risks that are commonly cited as barriers to progress may not be so essential.
1: Yeah, yeah, that kind of collaboration is such a no-brainer to me. It's just astonishing to me that, that we still encounter so much resistance to it. Let's turn to that fifth, final bucket in security cooperation. I mean, you guys point to gains, uh, but this might might be maybe less intuitive or less well known certainly than than other things like climate and public health cooperation. So, what did SNED bring about in in terms of security cooperation between China and the United States?
0: There were a number of sub regional and regional dialogues that the E D meant to talk about the two countries' priorities in different security issues around the world. And some of them did produce collaborative programs. One area that we cite as a success is that the U.S. and China set up a joint training program for Afghan diplomats, and then later, based on the success of that, for Afghan health workers. Hmm. So that was an area, I think, in which the while the two sides are really seen, um, and maybe particularly in the media, seen as having different strategic issues with regard to Afghanistan, there was still a lot to gain by talking to each other about um, the different priorities that they had, and working together on programs that actually benefited the, the Afghan people. So that's one area. Um, Another area that's cited as a particular area of progress is in South Sudan. The Chinese have a lot of interest in Sudan, South Sudan, um, particularly during this period. And the, you know, Susan can maybe speak to this more, but the U.S. was interested in China playing an active mediation role in the conflict in South Sudan. And Mm. China responded to that and played an active mediation role. That was seen as a success in that there was a U.S. priority and the Chinese responded and took on more than was expected. There are a couple other places where the U.S. had asks of China in the security realm that the Chinese did respond to. On U.S. peacekeeping throughout the s the U.S. asked China to contribute more to peacekeeping and China eventually did
1: yeah I, I wish we had more time to go into all these details but you know these five areas are just just part of what's in the body of the report there's so much more um, I suggest maybe that we just pick a couple of the outcomes that the audit surfaced that really stood out for you uh, some from the state list and some from the Treasury list you divided into into these two and I'm really particularly interested in things that might surprise us as listeners. Uh, where the impact may, maybe is less obvious, but is actually quite important. Um, maybe, Dan, you want to you go first and, and pick a couple of things, and uh, let's just a couple of sentences on each of them in the interest of time. But uh, I think it's important that we identify some of these.
2: Yeah, sure. Just to be brief, I think there are a couple categories of, of outcomes that really surprised me, and I think it really has to do with transparency and, and access. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, what I was surprised to see was that there was increased access for foreign financial institutions. Uh, And there was greater data transparency as well. And, and, you know, it may not have gotten to the point where some U.S. stakeholders would like to see, but there was progress. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there were there were a couple of commitments that I think we can point to, especially, as I mentioned earlier, OTC derivatives, as well as uh, foreign financial firms being able to offer RMB services and things like that.
1: Right. Right. I remember when that was announced. Rory, do you have a couple that you want to share?
0: Absolutely. I'll stick to just two. One is that the U.S. and China cooperated together first in China and then in third countries to convert highly enriched uranium plants into low enriched non weapons grade uranium plants. Mm-hmm. And this is obviously um, an area that would have massive security implications, I think reducing the amount of weapons grade uranium in the world. And doing so collaboratively between the U.S. and China and third countries is, is an obvious benefit to global security.
1: So could, they could take that model and then take it to Iran or to North Korea, right?
0: In theory, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so far that the most of the collaboration has been on African um, nuclear plants. But I think that there is certainly room to expand that if and when the political situation between the U.S. and China allows for that type of cooperation to start again. The second area that I'd mention, also global security related and perhaps commercial security related, is avoiding satellite collisions. One of the areas that really jumped out to me is that at the start of the SNED process, the U.S. was very concerned that um, the U.S. and Chinese satellites might collide in space and create um, debris
2: mm-hmm.
0: that could fall to Earth or could wipe out or damage commercial satellite operations. And at the beginning of the s n e d there was no way for the u s and China to effectively communicate when they might think that a satellite was about to collide, so the u s had a fax number that they could reach out to um <laughs> and Anyone who's worked with China for more than 10 years knows what it's like to be sending faxes to a Chinese fax number and not getting any response at all. Um, But over time, through the relationships that developed in the S&ED, they were able to establish a real-time email link to work on the issue of satellite collisions. And I think that that, again, is a key benefit where you don't don't see the benefit um, in a day-to-day, but... Avoiding those types of major accidents is certainly something that the U.S. government and the Chinese government should be working on together.
3: Well, can I can I just bring in one other security-related uh, thing that I think is worth raising at this point because it's become such a thorny issue in U.S.-China relations, which is cyber, uh, you know, cyber intrusion, cyber yeah. hacking, and one of the things that was a major focus of the SNED while I was there was law enforcement cooperation, which if you think about it from today's vantage point, you might think sounds absolutely fantastical. But, you know, we did have uh, very serious discussions between Chinese and U.S. law enforcement. And, you know, when you think about globalization and transnational issues, crime now and going on into the future is all going to be cross-border and inter- international law enforcement is going to have to find a way to work together, even through different systems. And we worked very hard on this. We had some breakthrough cases of cooperation between US and Chinese law enforcement in the uh, kind of child pornography realm and in a couple of other um, cyber crime type cases, which All laid the groundwork when things got very tense toward the end of the Obama administration on all of the different hacking issues. We had the OPM hack, for example. Um, We were able to have a delegation of Chinese come over. They had worked with their counterparts in Homeland Security and the FBI over years. And we were able to get this cyber agreement um, that established the principle that commercial uh, cyber hacking, state-sponsored cyber hacking for commercial gain. In other words, uh, the government sponsoring hackers to steal uh, corporate secrets and then transfer them to Chinese companies for the sake of competing back against those entities was not, um, you know, not something that should be done, not something that should be allowed. And people kind of chastise this agreement today and say, oh, you know, it didn't do anything. Of course, they agreed to this principle, but they never observed it. That's not exactly true. And we did see the kind of commercial intrusions from China drop off significantly after this agreement was signed. It wasn't at the SNED, but the relationships made through the SNED are what made it possible to to get that agreement. And um, to sort of establish a principle that we still, you know, to this day, China has not renounced that principle. They've just um, not they've observed it in the breach, of course. But um, I think it's it's still very important, and this is going to be an important area going forward, obviously.
1: So, with the rest of the time that we have, I want to I want to turn to recommendations that you folks come away with uh, from the audit. So, Susan, making some allowance for. You know the political exigencies at the moment, where really any full throated revival of engagement is going to be just you know a tad difficult. Uh, what would you though, what would you say if you could sit down today with President Biden and with Secretary Blinken and Secretary Yellen and uh, you know wanted to make the case again for the SNED having you know, give them the report, have them flip through it, and tell them what.
3: Yeah, I would make a case not so much for the revival of engagement, for, but for the revival of diplomacy with China. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really how I see the s It's a process by which we do both communication and try to get progress toward common objectives. The communication, in my view, which is one of the things that cabinet secretaries complained about, um, is just as important as the efforts to negotiate and get outcomes and progress because, you know, of the various factors that Dan and Rory have both mentioned, the different nature of the systems, one top down, one bottom up, the different ways in which our legal systems operate, the different stages of development that we're at and still are at, I would say, in many areas. And so you've really got to have these. Um, you know, established channels of communication, people who know who their counterpart is on the other end of the line and what they're responsible for, because it's probably not going to line up exactly with what you're responsible for, et cetera, et cetera. So these, you know, In the era of globalization, which I maintain we're still in and we're not going back from, China is going to figure in every single major issue that I, as a cabinet secretary, am trying to get done. Um, And so, you know, I've got to know who that person is. I've got to have people around who can understand how I can interact with that person on a productive level and uh, try to both head off things that are bad that I want to avoid have, have it, having happen, and to try to get progress on things that I know we have a common interest in. And I maintain in the face of much uh, scorn and derision that the common interest between the US and China today and going forward into the future are still far overwhelm uh, the areas of um, con- conflicting interests.
1: Yeah, that's, that's uh, absolutely right so rory uh, in in your mind, how would a new s and d d differ in form were it to be reintroduced uh, from the old one? What would you change?
0: I think that there are a couple of ways that the s and e d could be improved from a monitoring and evaluation standpoint, and this is really to speak to how to better communicate the value of some of the communication processes that Susan um, just advocated for mm-hmm. so one one aspect of the SNED that was particularly um, difficult to grapple with in terms of the, the evaluation of its value is that all of the outcomes were presented at equal weight. And we think that presenting outcomes based on what kind of outcome they were would better match the expectations of their value and their progress. So as we went through the S&ED, um, we noticed that, you know, some outcomes were statements of principle, some were new projects announced, and we think organizing them by those subtopics or subcategories would be useful because you don't expect the same type of progress from a statement of principle as you do from a new project that's announced or an agreement that's signed. So breaking down some of the commitments might better communicate value. Yeah. Additionally, there has to be a way to sunset dialogues that are not productive. Hmm. And that came up in almost every single qualitative interview that we did. Many of the people working on the SNED felt that some dialogues had outlived their usefulness or their initial logic and that there needed to be a regular review of what is in the SNED and why and that would probably lead over time to a narrowing of the scope as we alluded to i think earlier in the discussion some of these issues had been talked about outside the SNED for some time some even continued some of the projects and topics of discussion continued even through the breakdown of government to government communications over the last five years. So getting closer to what needs the s process, what needs the, the Treasury or State Department's buy-in and weight and expertise to move forward would also streamline things. And then finally, I'd say that making sure that there is a complex and ongoing relationship mapping project within any process of diplomacy between the US and China would also be super helpful to bridging some of these systems differences. As Susan said, there we're not a one-to-one match in systems, and it is helpful in the art of diplomacy, and it is an art, I think, and not a science to know who you're talking with, and what their areas of responsibility are, and whether or not that overlaps with another person in your own government who's talking to them about another issue. So right. those are some of the modifications we would suggest. But I think overall, we advocate for a return to a process.
1: Very good, Dan. Uh, you know there were some that were not productive, as as Rory said, that are you know good candidates for being sunsetted. What are the lessons, though, that we can learn from some of those areas where s didn't bear a whole ton of fruit?
2: Yeah, I think this is an important question and one that we should um, be upfront about, too. You know, the s did not make progress on every bit of issues. Um, but I think that there's a couple of things we can glean from this. The one that comes to mind is a need to prioritize issues. Mm-hmm. Um, one of our interviewees mentioned that, you know, if the U.S. Prioritizes everything; it prioritizes nothing, and in some ways, that was the approach. And so, <clears throat> and so, when we look at this, uh, we want to ask ourselves: you know, is it a failure of dialogue, or is it a failure of approach? And I think that that's an important sort of um, you know item to to sort of meditate on, as as uh, you know, if we think through what a hypothetical dialogue might look like in the future. You know, the other one that we've been alluding to here is the need to set expectations. Um, you know, I think Americans are, are, are used to a fast food nature. Uh, you know, we want our meal now. Um, mm-hmm. but in, in a lot of ways, the dialogue process is set up for the long term, right? Um, and we need to have a long term view on a lot of these things. Some of these outcomes didn't bear fruit until years later, and in some cases, decades later. And so if we have that view, I think that that's, you know, it might help us. Um, understand where the value, the real value of these dialogues lie. I also mentioned that I think this research really is, you know, a, a data point on a larger discussion about how U.S. conducts foreign policy abroad. Um, I think that it's important to note that, you know, these the dialogues are shown to have moved a lot of U.S. interests forward. I suppose I would challenge uh, the critics to show how a militarized approach would improve intellectual property rights in china for example so we do need to take a step back i think and and ask ourselves um, if this is our tool how do we approach it what do we need to prioritize and and what is our view of of when we need to see real outcomes from it
1: fantastic susan you know none of this though i mean even if we were able to summon the political courage to restart something like this it wouldn't matter if Beijing weren't open to it. So in your opinion, would Beijing still be open to reviving something like SDD or has that ship already sailed? Is there no longer enough good faith to even attempt something like this? I mean, is Beijing so convinced by now of American bad faith, so convinced that irrespective of who holds the White House or what party is in power in, in the Senate or in, in the House, America is determined just to to see China on its knees?
3: Well, I don't think that that Beijing would ever completely shut the door. I mean, I think leaders in Beijing know that the US-China relationship is still crucially important to China's future development, both on the upside and also potentially in the downside. If they can't manage the relationship, it's going to present all kinds of problems that they'd rather not have to grapple with in the midst of other challenges they see coming. So You know, I think they would like to see an expansion of communication and dialogue with the United States. They've heard, I think, over the years how the U.S. puts primacy on results-oriented dialogues. That is not the kind of dialogue that the Chinese would prefer. They prefer to have a strategic dialogue about long-term goals, and they'll have their staffs fill in the details. And this is part of the frustration, of course. But they would certainly like to have uh, more communication and interaction with the U.S. I don't think it would be exactly the same as the s and though, because I mentioned earlier that there are these different dynamics, and one of the dynamics of the s and was this kind of, we had a very regulated and developed um, economic and environmental protection, et cetera. Uh, sphere, and China's regulatory sphere was much more open at that time. In the meantime, the Chinese have closed a lot of that regulatory space, and they don't see themselves anymore as the sort of, I mean, they talk all the time about U.S. being the largest developed country, China being the largest developing country, but they don't really, I don't think anymore, see themselves so much as a student of the American tutor in the way that it sort of evolved in the Go SED ahead. and then at the beginning of the SED. So I think that some aspects would have to change. But I do think that on these transnational issues that are going to become such a formidable challenge to all countries in the in the world, not just the U.S. and China, that there's a lot of space there for cooperation. What I would anticipate is that sort of the bilateral U.S.-China has I think, declined to some extent in importance in addressing these kinds of issues. I think both the US and China have lost some degree of credibility and global leadership over the past few years. And I think the bilateral discussions that we could have might spark some ideas, but those would probably be taken to multilateral type meetings. And so you'd have a S&ED type mechanism that would set the stage for discussion of these kinds of transnational issues at, at multilateral meetings or plurilateral meetings, not at a bilateral summit at the end of the year, for right. example. And I think, you know, of course, when Obama came into office, there was a lot of talk of a G2 where the US and China would assume joint leadership on the global stage and work together to solve various problems. That was quickly thrown to the side, Uh, but I think we now see in the current state of affairs in the globe, after having come through the Trump administration and now into the Biden administration, that the G2 is not really going to be something that is going to materialize realistically in the near future. And so it'll be more in the spirit of sort of working together, but then we also have to work with sort of other major countries to bring about these kind of solutions to transnational problems. And the biggest one facing us right now is the pandemic, of course. And right on the heels of that, if we ever get through this is going to be climate change. And we're just not going to be able to not have conversations with China about these things. So I think, you know, the sooner we bow to reality and figure out how to establish some clear lines of communication that don't have to be severed every time we're offended by something that one or the other does, uh, the better off we're all going to be.
1: <laughs> I I yeah i mean, i I don't even know what to say. I agree with you so completely on this that uh it's a it's a f- perfect place to wrap up. I want to thank all of you i mean Rory Dan, and susan especially for for taking the time out of your very very busy lives to uh to join me for this conversation. Congrats on the report, uh, which I will put a link to online, obviously, and I think you should all t- download it and make sure to read the audit. It's uh, it's fascinating, and there are so many things that, that I picked up on, um, especially in that last section where you go through all of the, the, the different things from, you know, the, and, and look at the, the audit data itself. It's fascinating. So... Um, Let's move on now to recommendations. But first, I want to just quickly remind everybody that the uh, Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina, and the thing that we ask you all to do is if you can spare a couple of bucks a month, uh, sign up for for SubChina Access, our daily email newsletter, because it's 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 just a fantastic read. It's very valuable. It it is a roundup of all the news you really need to to, to read on China every weekday, and it's delivered right to your inbox, and it's highly affordable. And you're helping us out, more importantly. So um, one-stop shop for all the vital news on China. Uh, If you're interested in group subscriptions, please contact us. Uh, You can write to alex at subchina.com. We've got some very generous group subscriptions available for NGOs, for universities, for uh, companies even.
3: What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
1: All right, let's move on to recommendations. And uh, why don't we have Rory kick us off. What do you got for us?
0: All right. Let me, I'll have two recommendations. Um, one is a TV show, The Good Place. I love this show so much. It is about yeah. how to be a person in the world. Um, and it, it's about how to be a kind person in a complex world. And it's also funny and it stars Ted Danson. So if you have not seen that, you have so much fun ahead of you. Go check it out. It's um, a Mike Schur show who did The Office and Parks and Rec and brooklyn 99 so you can guarantee you will be amused and also learn something about philosophy um, it's it ticks great a, yeah it takes a lot of boxes for me and then on the on the same topic how do you be a good person in a complex world um i'd like to recommend another podcast the tara brock show um ah. tara brock is a fantastic uh very accessible meditation teacher and buddhist practitioner And she does a show every week about, you know, how do we deal with the pressure of modern life? Um, And I find it to be a really, really excellent resource for self-reflection and for um, making sense of how we react in a busy, overpaced world.
1: I have not heard Tara Brock, but I certainly am a fan of The Good Place and have recommended it on the show before. I love how, yeah, it's a crash course in moral... Philosophy too um, that's this sort sort of leitmotif in the whole thing there they actually talk about you know by the end of it you have a pretty good idea of of the major moral philosophers and and their programs so it's it's good yeah I like when they sneak that education on in there excellent Dan what do you have for us?
2: Yeah, I think I have two recommendations and, and sort of on the heels of Rory's recommendations. Uh, one of the books I'm reading right now is Thich Nhat Tan's Silence.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: Um, and I think it's an incredibly important book about how we sort of quiet our minds from the worries and anxieties of everyday life. And, and certainly as an advocate and somebody who deals with the, the nonstop motion of Congress and, and, and government, um, it's something that's been incredibly helpful for me. And I also, you know, I'll mention that, you know, this, this study that came out that shows that um, the younger generation is almost crippled by anxiety from climate change. The idea that we need to instill within ourselves um, some mental clarity and a little bit of control over our thoughts is incredibly important. So I really recommend it. It's a very quick read and it's a very um, light read as well. Um, and I also recommend really quick too, just in the, the note of our research, um, one of the things that I came across during while we were researching was the China hustle. And I think it's on Hulu or possibly Netflix. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's incredibly important documentary about how, um, you know, a lot of the things behind the scenes in terms of our financial systems and how they work. So I would really recommend it to your your listeners.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. Those are excellent recommendations. Um, And Susan, what do you have for us?
3: Oh, gosh, Kaiser, I can't remember what I've recommended on the show before, but I've got a TV show uh, on Nat Geo or Disney Plus called The Incredible Dr. Pole*. As you know, I live on a large farm in Maine, and we have a lot of animals on our farm. And Dr. Pole is this hysterical, real character, Hungarian veterinarian who does small and large animal veterinary work. And this is a reality show that basically shows the nitty gritty of running a veterinary operation. And I have saved so much money on my vet bills here on the farm um, by watching the show and how he, you know, brings calves into the world and treats dogs and cats and chickens and all kinds of strange animals. And plus he's just, um, I mean, it's a lot of color and culture about Uh, rural michigan which i very much appreciate and i think uh your listeners would also appreciate really um just heartwarming kind of show good for the kids etc um i love it another recommendation i hate to recommend another podcast because you know Seneca is really the the only true podcast but
1: (laughs) i do it all the time
3: i do love the hidden forces podcast with Dimitri cofinis I don't know if that's been recommended on your show before, but it's, it's, I mean, I don't agree with Dmitri on everything, but he has people, the people he gets on are great. And the topics on everything from philosophy to religion, to financial markets, investing, macroeconomics, foreign policy. I mean, it's just a, the sweep of the show is breathtaking. He, he prepares, you know, like you do before every podcast And it's just tremendous education. And I I really enjoy um, the interactions that he has with his guests. And then I just want to recommend one book. It's probably been recommended on your show before. I don't know. But um, in honor of dear departed friend Ezra Vogel at Harvard, Mm, who we mm. all dearly miss, I am reading his book, uh, China and Japan Facing History. came out in 2019. Right. And you know, we all say that the U.S.-China relationship is the most consequential. But actually, when I sit down and think about it, I think the China-Japan relationship is, you know, if not the most consequential, almost. And um, this is just a fascinating and really easy to read and fun kind of trek through the last 2,000 years of China-Japan interactions and all the things that go wrong. And Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And some things that go right, but mostly go wrong, and it's just very instructive. And um, I'm really enjoying it.
1: Yeah, I can't believe I haven't read that yet. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna buy it right now. That's that's absolutely one. Um, may he rest in peace. He may was he truly, one peace. Greatest, well, truly one of one the of greatest. One of the
3: greatest people. Yeah. I mean, speaking of how to be a good human, exactly. there you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: All right. I've got a couple of recommendations myself. One of them is uh, Evan Oslo's new book, Wildland, it, it, which I just started last night. Uh, he reads it himself. He's a very, very good reader on odd audiobook. And I ended up staying up absurdly late listening to this. I shouldn't have done that. That's why I'm, I've got these terrible dark circles in my eyes. But I knew I had to get up early. But, you know, fortunately, the kids it's, it's Yom Kippur. The kids had the day off of school, so I didn't have to get up and make the breakfast. But it was great. Um, it's 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 not, I mean, I'm only a couple of chapters in, but it's already just a, a gripping, gripping read. fantastic. So I highly recommend that that the again, the the name of the book is Wildland. The making of America's Fury, and and what Evan does is he you know goes to these places where you know he grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut. He worked in West Virginia, and and then uh, in Chicago. So he talks to people from all walks of life there, and to try, tries to understand what's happening in American partisanship. The other I want to recommend another podcast myself. It's called The Grand Tomasha and I I, I know about it uh, because Evan Feigenbaum was interviewed on it. And uh, I know you know he. It's it's actually co-produced by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. the The host is fantastic. I, I think of it as sort of the India version of Seneca. We call it Indica, maybe. Although that name's kind of taken by a strain of marijuana already. But Indica is, uh, or the Grand Tamasha, is, is extremely good and the guests are, again, uh, they cover the same sort of current affairs in India. A couple that I've listened to recently that I particularly liked, there was, there was one that was written about uh, China-India relations in a sort of broader historical perspective that doesn't just focus on the McMahon line and lines of actual control and all that stuff, but is much broader. Uh, it really looks at, at the big picture of, of India-China relations, and it was an excellent interview. Um, the The, the the author is clearly very, very, very smart. Uh, another one that I listened to was on a Pew poll on religion in India, and it goes into real granularity about what the, the findings of this the Pew poll on religion in India, which is just it's it's really eye opening, and uh, I highly recommend it. So people who are who are looking for the India version of Seneca, that's that's the one, Grand Tamasha. I wanna thank you guys again. Susan, that was just so one. it's so great to have you on the show again. Dan, welcome and I hope to have you back on the show again. Continue the great work. And Rory, of course, congrats on was this baby number three for you? Two. Two? Two, 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 thankfully. <laughs> all right. We have a right. two
3: child policy at
0: the N C A F P. Yeah. I'm grandfathered in <laughs> two child policy at my household. Yeah,
1: is this is yeah. enough. We wanted three. We stopped at two, but uh all right. Uh, so th- thank you all very much, and I hope to see you all again soon. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you drop us an email at Seneca at com, or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at News. Make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network thank you for listening. We will see you next week. Take care.